Good morning, everybody. We're um, going to get started. Adult Bible study. There's a, a handout like there usually is. You know, a week ago I talked about the sense in which man is in the image and likeness of God. And the week before that I talked some about the, the image of, of God and what that means. And uh, this week I, I want to deal with uh, another uh, aspect of, of people, the way we are, the way God's made us, the way he's designed us. And people use terms that are found in the Bible. They don't always mean the same thing when they use the term. So one of those terms is a soul. Another one is spirit, mind, heart, conscience, maybe some others. Those are the, the main ones. And I will tell you now, as I was going through the study, I realized my, uh, I usually, you know, I read from a, a CSB, a Christian Standard Bible, Christian Standard Translation. And it's just horrid. On almost every verse I looked at, it's just, it's just wrong. Um, they've, they've moved out things to make it read well, and words that are there, you don't see them translated. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to use a King James. So you'll see me reading from a King James. King James, New American Standard, they're very literal. The ESV tends to be literal. The New King James tends to be literal. Uh, but but in, in places, NIV, CSB, uh, they're paraphrastic. They, they, they give a sense, but they don't necessarily interpret all the words that are there. And for this study, because we're really focused on words, soul, spirit, conscience, if they're not there in the verse, when I look at the English translation, then I can't use it. So I hope that makes some sense to you. But um, we're going to look at this, this sense, because people are more than a physical body. But if you ask a Darwinist, that can't be, right? Because if, if we uh, don't have an uh, intelligent creator that's made us more than a physical body, if it's all... Uh, our existence is the result of uh, random mutations over billions of years or millions of years, then we're just a body and nothing else. And yet innately, most people, even people who, who you know, would, wouldn't accept the Bible as true, they sense that there's more to us than a body. Your brain, according to the scripture, and I think according to common sense, your brain is, is not the source of your creativity. It's, it's a tool Okay, use so your body can interact in this world. Your brain is able to connect your thoughts to the rest of your body. It's the reason an emotion can come out with a tightness of the chest or feeling in the gut. Well, how does that happen? There's more going on uh, maybe than meets the eye, but it's more than the brain. So if I talk about a, a spirit or a soul or a mind, I don't mean a brain. And I don't mean a a physical heart. The scripture almost never refers to the physical heart, but it uses the word heart over 900 times in the Old and New Testaments. Almost always, to get at the seat of our thinking, um, you know, what is it that's in your heart? The Bible says God doesn't just look on the outside. He sees what's in the heart. And, And I'm saying that's not your brain. There's more to us than what's physical. Uh, But we have these words... And, and one of them is soul. So let's take a little bit of a look at the word soul. I think in church, we, we have lingo we use, and we're all on the same page, so the lingo works. But the lingo may not be on the same page as the scripture. And one of those words is soul. Yes, ma'am? I was going to ask uh, concerning heart, where are they writing that word heart from? In the Hebrew? Well, it's, it's, it's in a sense a figurative use because it, because it can be used of, a, of, of, of an organ, but you just never see it, right? That's, that's what I was curious. If, they, if they're using something different in the English language, just interpret that as heart. Because 
N- no, and like in, in, I don't know the Hebrew word, but the Greek word is cardia. We get cardiac, right? Except it just doesn't get used that way. I mean, in general, it is, that is, it's used uh, figuratively. And a lot of words are that way. You know, the, the word sober in the New Testament never has to do with not being drunk. It has to be uh, a figurative of a, an alertness of mind, you know. It's, it's a way it's used. What, what, what's important for us, though, as we look at our translations, sometimes it's helpful to compare some because is there a difference between a heart and a mind? There may be a, a difference, and then I think it's nuanced in the scripture. Well, context would determine it, but if we're reading the English and it, and it doesn't use either word, heart or mind, then, then you see what I'm saying, you'll, you'll lose it. You'll lose that nuance. And anyway, I don't want to make that a soapbox. It just, if, if I'm going to do a word study, I have to look at some different translations. And for this one, um, I went to what I had on the shelf, which was old reliable here. <laughs> um, so a soul, Genesis chapter th- uh, 2 and uh, verse 7, the Lord God formed man to the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And it was right when I got to that verse in my, my CSB, and it, the words weren't there. And I said, okay, <laughs> let's see what happens with the next verse. And it didn't work out. But you see what I'm saying about the littleness. Now, that doesn't tell you what a soul is necessarily, but you begin to see it in context. Um, God breathed life into this uh, man made of dirt and he becomes a living soul. Uh, that's, that's something that's, that's now different. Um, this word soul, in, um, and I've got the, in the notes, I've got the Hebrew word, it's nefesh. It's, it, it typically means um, life, being alive, but, but it, there's, there's nuances within that. And that's what I want you to see. There's nuances within it. And where I'm heading with this is, is it, I want to show you that spirit and soul are not the same. Yeah, that's where I'm heading with this because um, a lot of times we may talk in terms, like I said earlier, church terms that we know what they mean, but we talk about souls, and I think most people use the word soul to mean spirit, and it's exactly the Bible says, generally speaking, that they're not the same. doesn't mean they're unrelated, but they are not the same. And when the New Testament wants to say spirit, pneuma, uh, it's really got a P on the front, pneuma, like pneumatic, we don't usually pronounce the P, pneumatic tools, that's from the Greek word pneuma, a wind or a spirit. Uh, Paul uses that word in abundance. But it's not totally. It gets a little more complex. It's extremely rare for the New Testament to use the word soul to have the idea of one spirit. The Old Testament never does it. And, and, and I'm going to put some more meat on what I mean by spirit so you'll see why they're, why they're different. But we have a soul here. We're created as a living soul. Um, the animals were created. They're alive. But the, but the creation text goes to, to great uh, lengths to separate out in Genesis 2 and focus on the sixth day of creation. God makes man, breathes life uh, into him. He's a living soul. Um, this term is usually connected to our um, uh, experience of life, is, is one I wanted you to get the idea of. In other words, there's being alive, heartbeats, blood pressure, brain activity. That's not what the scripture means. Um, when, you, when you talk about, to somebody about their life, what are we talking about? We're talking about things they've done, 
ideas they've had, love they've had, uh, relationships they've cultivated, it's their life. Right? What, what, what is there to, to making up a, a life? It's, it's a lot of things. And they get captured uh, largely within this, this sense of a soul. Okay? Uh, so the concept I hear is, is usually temporal experience of life. It can be used broadly of the whole person. So, for example, I'll read a, a famous passage from Isaiah 53. You remember what, what, what Isaiah 53 is about? Hmm? About Messiah, right? Uh, the suffering servant. And um, so Isaiah is our, our first really long prophetic book. And I'm going to just read Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul unto death. Poured out his soul unto death. And, and I think it's a messianic passage. Uh, he was numbered with the transgressors. He bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. But the Messiah would pour out his soul. Okay? But what did he do? How did he pour out his soul? Gave up his life, right? Got on a Roman cross. Uh, uh, shattered out, it's finished. The end of John's gospel. And then, you know, John chapter 20. And then, I think it's 20. He, and then he, 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 he commits his spirit. Remember that? Pours out his soul. But then what does he say to, to the Father? Jesus speaks to the Father. He says, I commit my spirit to you. Because the spirit's going to be the part that continues. And so even in that context, we, he gets, you know, both terms get used. They, they're not the same thing. But here it's like the whole person. He pours out his soul. Uh, his very life, all that it contained, all, all the experiences, everything, is given up at that moment at the cross. That's the soul being poured, being poured out. Um, it, it's also the center, it seems, of, of spiritual and emotional experiences. So, for example, uh, sympathy, book of Job, chapter 30. If you find the book of Job, chapter 30, and verse 25, you, you notice I'm focusing on Old Testament right now. I want to get to the New Testament in a minute, because soul in the New Testament is very close but not identical. But in the Old Testament... Book of Job, um, chapter 30, verse 25, just an example, and these, all these uh, citations are here in the handout, of, of one's soul experiencing an emotion. So Job 25, Job says, did I, not, did I not weep for him that was in trouble? And listen to this. Was not my soul grieved for the poor? My soul. And there again, in a modern translation, it, it removed that term. Uh, and it just kind of said, I grieved. But, but that, that term is being brought in because part of our temporal experience of life is all the emotions, the positive, the, the joy, uh, exuberance, um, and then the negative, grief, sorrow, sadness. And, and these things are experienced by our soul. They can also be experienced to some degree by our body because when you're in great sadness, you can feel it. You can have physical uh, manifestations of that. But here, uh, the body, or the soul rather, experiences it. I want to read one that I have. I'm not going to read all of these. I, I've, I've included extras because you could take this handout and look up, up, up some more. But my uh, favorite Old Testament book is the Song of Solomon, so I thought I'd grab one there. Song of Solomon, right after the book of Proverbs. And she talks, and I say she, 
of love. Song of Solomon is, uh, surprising to some people, a song. Okay? Uh, it's funny, if you read the, the academic literature, they struggle to figure out what kind of literature this is. It's a song. And the lead character in the song that sings uh, the, the words to the song uh, is a lady who, who later in the book is named Shulamit. And in chapter 1 of, of the book, uh, verse 7, part of the words that she sings, she says, Tell me, O thou whom my soul loveth. Tell me, thou whom my soul loveth. Okay? Uh, you know, where thou feedest, where thou makest thy flock to rest at noon. Um, she, she longs to be with her beloved, doesn't know where he's at. And she says, thou whom my soul loves. The soul is seen as the, um, that part of us that experiences the love. Just like Job sees his soul as the part of him that experiences grief or sorrow in real time. It's the part of us that experiences um, the emotions. Uh, in the Old Testament, I kind of conclude this. The soul doesn't exist apart from your body. There's not a reference to a person died and then their soul is with God. You don't see that in the Old Testament, not once. It's just the soul is used always in the capacity of experiencing life in some way. Um, never used of this uh, kind of immaterial part of ourself that never, that never uh, ceases. We'll see that in the New Testament is the word spirit. But um, let's look at the New Testament soul. This is, this is where most of us will see passages that are more familiar to us. Um, the New Testament soul People write it when they write it in English. They write it P-S-Y-C-H-E, and it looks like it's saying psyche. Um, and it is where we get the English word psyche. But it's, people pronounce it in Greek, it's psuche. But it's the English word psyche, which is the root of psychology, the study of the soul. Which is interesting because most psychologists deny you have a soul. But it's the study of the soul. Why? Why would it be the study of the soul? Because the study of the soul is that part of you that experiences the emotions. And it's those emotions that often are what may bring you to a psychologist. I mean, it's, it's that part of you uh, that is more than the emotions, but it's that part of you that experiences life. And this word suke is used 104 times in the New Testament. Sometimes, okay, in a few occasions, it, and very rarely, but it is used of the part of you that remains when the body dies, which we otherwise, in most other places, would call the spirit. And that's where it's different than its use in the Old Testament. There are a few uses, and, and I think I'll, I'll, I'll read one of them. But generally speaking, it is, it is the life. It's either the whole of your life, or maybe there's a focus on some part of it. When, when the Titanic went down, the news headlines read... That, and I forget the exact number, but it's this many souls were lost. Why? Hmm? It's just, did you remember the number? I don't know. 1,232. Okay, so the headlines, you know, 1,232 souls lost at sea or whatever. And um, why? It's not just that the people died. That's a life. That's a, a story. That's a lifetime of experiences gone in that moment. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, yeah, and, and but it, but it's it's your your very being. It's you just you think about um, 
We, we use the same thing in, in English, but we just use the word life. How's life going for you? Um, you know, I've, I've, uh, you know what, what's the story of your life kind of thing? What would you talk about? Well, you wouldn't say giving the story of your life, uh, like a biography as we call it. You wouldn't say, well, I have a heartbeat, a blood pressure, and you can do an MRI scan on me and see this or that. No one says that because that's not what we mean by the story of your life. People start off and talk about their experience of childhood or, or whatever. Uh, and, and that's what it is. And, and it raises an interesting question, does it end at the grave? We'll, we'll talk a little about that in a minute. But uh, the, the soul, the suke. So uh, sometimes used, and I'm going to go to Acts 2, like I said, for kind of the, the, the immaterial aspect of us. What you start getting out of this, and as we move into soul and spirit in the New Testament, you're not just a physical body. Okay? There's an immaterial aspect of you. And, and I think that's primarily in the, in the scripture, the spirit, the mind, um, the heart. But there's this soul that you're now experiencing uh, a life. So we'll look at uh, Acts 2. And Acts 2 uses the term a couple of times, two or three times, I think. So Acts 2 and, and verse uh, 31 what I want. Yes, Acts 2.31. Um, I'll, I'll read verse 30 first, because uh, it's kind of in the middle of a sentence in verse 31. Um, Therefore, being a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on the throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul, okay, Jesus' soul, was not left in, in uh, and then here's where the King James says hell, and that stoned people off. But the words Hades, uh, his his word, his his soul wasn't left there. Neither did his flesh see corruption. And we know what the idea is. Uh, Jesus didn't stay dead, but he could have said it in different ways, and it, and it uses the word soul. His soul uh, was not left in the in, in, in the hell. The, the, the hell's just a um, like a figure of speech here. It wasn't left in the grave. He didn't stay dead. Why his soul, right? It seems that, at least in this instance, um, and it's one of just a handful, the soul is that part when the body's dead. I mean, that body's in the, in, in the tomb, the Joseph of Marathea's tomb. And, and then you say, well, but where is, you know, is there something else? And yeah, there is something else. Jesus has a spirit, but here the word soul is, is used of that part. I think when we speak in English, of, of winning souls or something like that or um, the loss of a soul we often in church lingo I think means spirit uh, and that's a sense in which you kind of see it in, in 231 but if you look in 233 just a couple of verses later um, actually um, I'm picking, I'm picking the, the wrong one I think I want 41 41, then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them, unto them is not in the text, but it's, it's been added just to smooth it out. About 3,000 souls were added. Why? I mean, souls here refers to the people. In a lot of new translations just say people, but the idea is this person's life, the, 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 the whole of the person in a sense is what's being used here, not just an animate being, they're alive, but, but a living person experiencing life, the, 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 and here it uses the word souls. And they were added to the church that day, 3,000. 
So that's the sense. But let's, let's look at Luke, um, Luke 12. It's a fascinating passage in Luke 12. Just back up a little bit from Acts. Um, and the verse I've cited here in the notes is, is verse uh, 19. But I'm going to back up a little from that to get some context. Verse 15, He said unto them, Take heed... And beware of covetousness. This is what Jesus is going to talk about. Covetousness. Loving a stuff. Can't, can't get enough stuff, right? Can't get enough money or whatever. A man's life. wonder what word is life there. Okay? A man's soul consists not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. Um, the King James often uses the word life to translate soul. There's another word that also means alive. It's zoe, but it, this is the word suke. This is the word soul. Jesus says, for a man's um, soul, his soul consists of more than the things that are in his garage. That shouldn't surprise us. Um, I like to use the word soul life. I didn't make that one up, but that was handed to me a long time ago, and it's helped me make sense of these passages. Our soul life, who you are when you tell the story of your life, shouldn't really be a story about what's in your garage. It ought to be more than that, a whole lot more. And Jesus is saying that a man's life is, 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 is more than his bank account, more than his garage, uh, more than his job. I mean, it's, it's so much more. And then he's going he's gonna to illustrate it. A man's soul life consists not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. He had a bumper crop. He said, My goodness, I'm just flush with cash. What shall I do? Right? So he goes on. He thought within himself. This is the man thinking within himself, thinking within his heart. What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. His garage is not big enough for the bumper crop. He's just got so much. So you know how the story goes. He's like, I've got to build a bigger garage, a bigger barn. He said, this will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater uh, and, and there I will bestow all my fruits and my goods. I'm going to make a bigger barn to, to hold it all. And I will say to my soul. Now this man is in the parable speaking to his own soul as it were. Uh, I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Remember what Jesus was saying? Your soul is more than your possessions. And this man is the illustration of someone who his soul, as he literally speaks to his soul, says, you've got so many goods, so many possessions. You say, well, why is your soul more than your possessions? Well, Jesus, he, he explains it here. Uh, this man speaks to his soul. I've got enough stuff for to last many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Uh, that's what he tells his soul. Kick your feet up, enjoy life. You are independently wealthy. Your barn's full. Um, but God said unto him, You fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. He's going to die. His life, his soul life, all those experiences, everything he had, will end that day. Um, and, and who shall those things be which thou hast provided? Oh, wait a second. If my soul is about the things I own, but when I die, somebody else gets the things I own, then my, I was wrong, right? My soul really can't be the things I own because someone else is getting them. Does that, I hope that makes sense. So, so Jesus says, so is he that layeth up treasure for himself 
and is not rich toward God. Why? Because the richness toward God, and that's not just about money, it's about a lot of things. Your, your life, your soul, is, is the experience of life, and you've got an opportunity to do it however you want, within the constraints of, of you know, we all have some natural constraints, we can't uh, all, all do some things, but generally speaking, we have choices and we make them, and we are going to invest um, in Christ or in us. And either way that we do that, as we do it moment by moment, day by day, we're experiencing life. Life is one who's rich toward God. Life is one who's rich toward himself, like this guy in the story. And, and that becomes your life. So, so, so back up uh, to Matthew 16. But think about this matter of the, of the soul. If it's rich toward God, what he's going to say is, it lasts beyond the grave, in a sense. But if it's not rich toward God, and it's just all about you, uh, and, and things like possessions, things that are fleeting, it doesn't last beyond the grave. So Matthew 16, Jesus talks about this matter of the soul, or the soul life. This is where Peter makes a great confession of faith. Then Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. Um, which he begins doing. You see that unfold in the book of Acts. And then Jesus goes into this matter of discipleship. Uh, Yeah, Matthew 16. And we start in verse 24. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, so this is just after Peter's made his confession of faith and all that. He said unto his disciples, if any man will come to me, let him deny himself. This isn't how you become a Christian. They're already Christians. That's why they're called disciples here in this passage. But, but a person who is a Christian is expected to, to have some devotion to Christ. And he's going to talk to them about this. He says, let him, come, let him deny himself, um, take up his cross and follow me. And whosoever, and I'm going to read the word soul life, but understand it, the word is soul. It's suke, not zoe. It's suke. Whoever will save his soul life shall lose it. That seems like a paradox. How can I... How can I uh, lose it by saving it? Then he says, whoever will lose his soul life for my sake shall find it or keep it or save it. See the, the, the paradox? Well, why is that? He goes on, for what, what does a man profit if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul life? That was the man in Luke 12. That's why I read that first. He gained the whole world as it were. He had all the money in the bank that he wanted in the bigger barns and in the bass boat and all that stuff. And and he lost it all in a single evening. And he didn't wake up that morning thinking that was his, his last. So he says, well, what does it matter if you profit, uh, you know, you gain the whole world? That's a hyperbole, but just theoretically, right? Because covetousness is never satisfied. It, it always needs more. If you could get all there was to get, what would it profit, he says, if you also lost your soul? He's not talking about people going to hell. He's talking about the fact that you can waste a life in many ways. Just waste it. I mean, spend years in doing things that are not in the least bit rich toward God, and all that just sort of ends at the grave. It doesn't, it's gone. Uh, you can also be rich toward God. You can be the one he's talking to his disciples. He's telling them, lose your soul life for my sake and you'll keep it. Invest your life in Christ, in his work, and you'll keep it. Yes, ma'am. And that's where you have to define, okay, what is riches in Christ versus riches in the world? 
And that's a good question. Yeah, what are the riches in Christ? Um, I, 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 we would go to a lot of passages to, to dig all that out, but I'll say broadly, they're far wider, I think, than we think sometimes. In other words, it's, it's easy to view it in, a, in sort of a, a local church paradigm and, and stuff like, say, standing up here teaching, because that may or may not be riches in Christ, depending on my personal motives. It's so much broader. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You do that, that's riches toward Christ. Right? It's much, so much broader. Um, uh, Jesus constantly talks about loving people and even you know, says, you know, love one another. You do that in a lot of ways. It's riches toward God. A kind word, some encouragement. Um, uh, you know, it's just, it, it, there's so many things. The disciples are going to follow and do what Jesus has for them. And he has different things for all of us. And he places us at different areas. In our, uh, while we're still working, we, we were placed in a spirit work. And we're to be a, a, an image bearer for Christ at that place. No, no, and, it, and that's a good point. It's, it's, it's never, the issue is never that, being, that having wealth is bad. Solomon was given great wealth, and I've, I've shared this probably before at some point, but you know, when I was on staff at a church years ago, there was someone who got it, it really blessed financially, and her health didn't hardly allow her to get to church, but no one ever asked for money. But there were just times when there was a great need in, in this, this person, $100,000 check would come in, and it was common. And, and uh, when the church flooded and Hurricane Ike happened, you know, I redid the whole church. Cost the church nothing. In part, you know, a little bit from the insurance company, which took some strangling to, to get from them, and, and some checks that she sent. And, and anyway, it's just to say this, and I've known several people like her. That was the way God set her up to be rich toward him. Doesn't mean that's the only thing she could do, but I mean, and especially at that point in her life, that was something she could do. And yeah, yeah, and 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 well, and one of the things you can do is you can pray for people, and that's one I haven't mentioned yet. Rich toward God, have a long prayer list that's mostly not about you, but about other people. Rich toward God, stand in front of Jesus. He says, "Well done, good and faithful servant," because you were that person that was that we call them sometimes prayer warriors for years about all kinds of people, long list of people. Those people, Jesus is going to say, well done. And that's the idea of a, of a soul rich toward God. It can have so many aspects, and I just don't want anyone, don't think of it just in terms of, of some kind of um, service role within a church, although it can include that for sure. But it's so much more. Yeah. You just take all kinds of, of roles, and a lot of people um, used to know this, this man, um, and, and for years, because he just wasn't the type that he let anyone know what he was doing except the person he was helping. But when I found out, I was like, wow, this man, he was the one that, the, you know, there was, you know, some widows, some, some, some shut-ins and things. He was the one that made sure the, tire got, uh, the tires got put on the car, the car got fixed, the house got painted, and no one knew about it unless he went and asked some, a volunteer. And even then, no one knew about it. And then I learned about it, I'm like, wow. This, I mean, what an extraordinary soul life. Uh, I hope that makes some sense. There are so many ways. Um, at the end of the day, if you had to say it, and suddenly you're serving other people with Christ-like love. So he goes on and he explains how a soul has continuing value after the grave. 
He says in verse 27, the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and he's going to reward every man according to his works. He's going to say, well done. He's going to commend a soul life that was rich toward God. That's the idea. But let's move to, um, like, there's more verses here I'd like to read. Uh, but we just have this idea the soul life seems to be our experience of life mostly. But, but uh, your soul can grieve. It can be happy. Uh, and I've got some, you know, some verses about this. Uh, Jesus experienced sorrow. Jesus himself said, my soul has sorrow. Mark 4, uh, 14.34. But then we have this word spirit, which is, uh, you know, the Apostle Paul rarely uses the word soul. We see it a lot in the Gospels. He uses the word spirit, and he focuses on that because uh, he focuses on how you become a Christian. Um, You're made new in Christ. You're a new creation. Um, You have all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, according to Ephesians 1 and 2. And and now you have the the indwelling of the Spirit of God uh, within you. And that Spirit of God is is the means by which we can now um, walk in a way, live in a way that's pleasing to God. And, And Paul focuses a lot on that. The Spirit of God works together with our spirit, uh, the way in which we're, we're created. And in our spirit continues um, after, after the grave. Um, Jesus told the lady at the well, you remember, she's an interesting character because um, she doesn't even go to seminary and she gets the whole town saved where she's from. The disciples went there to buy a beef jerky or something, right, uh, to her city. Didn't get anybody saved that day. They didn't talk to anybody about Jesus and they came back. See Jesus talking with this lady, and, and um, she goes and she says, "I don't know much, but that man knows everything about me." Like he, you know, she figures out he's the the Christ. Do you remember? She said, "You know, your people say you worship over here, the temple in Jerusalem. My people, she was a Samaritan. We we worship over here on this other mountain." What did Jesus say? Those who worship God, because He's a spirit, must worship God in spirit and truth. You can't do that except if you have a spirit. We're designed for worship. We are designed. That, that Genesis 2-7 is really breathing the spirit into us because we are being designed for a relationship with a God who is spirit. And, and, and that is our core design. That's why everybody's religious, whether they're Christian or not. I don't believe in atheists. I never have. But uh, even those who say they're atheists don't live consistently like atheists because we're wired for a relationship with God. Those who worship God do so in, in spirit and in truth, both. So our spirit, just, just as uh, you know, an example or two here, um, but uh, in Matthew 5, 3, because I'm already in Matthew. Your spirit also seems to be a seat of emotions and thinking. So in Matthew 5, 3, part of the uh, Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit. You've heard that one before. Blessed are the poor in spirit. He, he's getting at the core of, of how we relate to God. And, and, and this poor in spirit is, is a, a place of a particular emotion here. And here I think it's contriteness. It's, it, it maybe get the idea of humility in there. Uh, because it's being contrasted throughout the passage with, with the Pharisees. Yeah, blessed. What does he mean by poor in spirit? You know, I, think it's, it's this, I think it's this idea of being the exact opposite of the, the pride of the Pharisees. 
who think they are so righteous they'll be in the kingdom through their works. Much of Matthew 5 is saying, right, he says in a few, I mean, imagine the scene there. He's got a big church, you know, it's a big Baptist church probably, and then there's some Pharisees over here, and, and they're probably in the front row. I'm not talking to any of y'all, but they're just there in the front row. And Jesus says, unless you're more righteous than these Pharisees, you will never see the kingdom of God. And you're like, ooh. You know, that's not very friendly, is it? Then he goes to the end of the, the last verse in the chapter. He says, um, you've got to be perfect like God. And, and see, the poor in the spirit, uh, those people, they see their own failures. They don't, they, don't, they don't have a self-righteousness where they judge other people. They see their own brokenness. And that's the reason they're going to be the ones who see the kingdom. At the end of the day, it's never evidence that keeps people out of heaven. It's pride. And those people don't have it. They're poor in spirit. But just to say that your, your spirit in several of these passages, and, and I just can't read them all, but uh, Matthew 5.3 is kind of like humility. Um, uh, and, and you see it in the Old Testament. Uh, John 13.21 is, is another good one. Remember, um, yeah, John 13.21. Let me read that one. This is one more, and then we'll kind of bring this to a close. Um, when Jesus had uh, thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you will betray me. This is the Last Supper. We know who the betrayer is. No one else sitting there seems to have figured it out. They, in fact, they so trusted him, they let him carry the money. Uh, Jesus is, is, is vexed, troubled. In his spirit. And what I'm saying is, you know, I, I think the source of your emotions is your spirit. The way in which we experience them day by day is our soul. Uh, and, and so, um, but, but the spirit is that part of us in the New Testament that, that is indestructible. It never, it never leaves. It's never gone. When, when, what happens when you die? Well, um, your body, okay, you can put it in a grave, put it in a sea, put it in, a, in a, an urn, it doesn't matter. The real you, in a, in a very real sense. I mean, the real you is the body and spirit together, and that's our destiny, right? We're eventually going to have a new body. It's not our purpose to be like disembodied spirits. But the source of, of our thinking and our emotions, okay, is this spirit. Um, in the book of Revelation, for example, uh, and it does use the word souls. As I said, it, it gets used sometimes even after death. Um, the fifth seal Revelation 6. I won't read it, but I'm kind of paraphrasing. The fifth seal is the martyrs. Uh, during that terrible period of time, we call it the tribulation, the martyrs under the altar. You remember what they asked for? How long, God, until you avenge us, kind of thing. Um, how much longer do you let sin run rampant before you say it's done? Uh, it's finished. That term actually gets used later in Revelation. Um, what does that tell you about those people? They're dead from our perspective, right? There's an obituary. You can read about them. They remember. They're intelligent. They're speaking to God. It wasn't your brain after all that was the source of that. They remember the afflictions they had. They did. They remember all of it. And it, it was seen. And, and they had the wherewithal to have a conversation. There's a place in Luke, and again, I won't read it. I don't remember the chapter, but this is not a parable. Jesus talks about a man 
who, who dies, who's not a believer, and he sees Abraham, but separated from him across a chasm, and he has a conversation with Abraham. You remember what he asked him? What does he ask Abraham for? He was asking Abraham to send Lazarus, who was sitting next to Abraham, to tell his brothers to repent and come to Christ. Yes. Which, which in a fell swoop does away with all the theology that says unsaved people can't think about spiritual things and understand them. He gets it. He knows why he's there. He remembers. He's pleading with Abraham to send a Lazarus. Lazarus was the beggar at, the, at this rich man's gates. And, and, and it's just to say, your spirit, it, it does, even, as, even as an unbeliever, like that's permanent as far as the scripture. And, 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 and we will maybe another time deal with, you know, some would say, well, um, after a final judgment, non-believers, their spirit just gets turned off and all that. But I, you know, it's extinguished. I don't believe that. But um, your spirit really is the source of your intellect, your emotions. We experience it during this lifetime, and we call that our soul life, as we experience those things. But the source is, is the spirit. The last thing I'll mention, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, and it's where we'll, we'll finish. Because... Um, for a long time, there's been this idea of maybe a, a soul sleep or something. Um, there's all kinds of weird ideas come up. I think some of them come out of television. Uh, when the bell rings, an angel gets its wings. Uh, people die and become angels. And I wonder when I, like, what kind of angels? The, the Well, it... it Exactly, but if you're right, a lot of it is it's an influence from art, in the old world, media, but but it's just we get some wrong ideas, and one of them is just the kind of idea that you're sort of dormant for some period of time, and then later, you know, you're you're not, and you'll be resurrected. Um, you're going to get a new body later, but if if you leave this world today, you're going to be with the Lord like that. There's not going to be a, an, an interim a waiting period. So 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1 to 8, just to see here. We know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, that's our body. He's using a, a metaphor for it. But he views the human body as a tabernacle, a tent. The Old Testament, the tabernacle is a tent that housed the Holy of Holies. And his tabernacle is housing your spirit and the indwelling presence of God through his Holy Spirit. And when it's dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Which, which I think he's really talking about getting uh, our, our, our future bodies. But it's, this life won't end, and he'll make this clear. Uh, For in this we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. This body that aches and pains sometimes, and sometimes gets sick, and sometimes things break... Uh, groans for a new house that never has those problems. Um, if so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for, uh, not for that uh, would we be unclothed, but clothed upon that mortality might be swallowed up of life, replacing human mortality, the end of this body, with life. Um, now, uh, he that have wrought us for the self-same thing is God, who also hath given us the earnest of the Spirit. Uh, earnest, in, in modern legal, legal terminology, a down payment, earnest money. 
God has given us his Holy Spirit indwelling us uh, as, as a certain guarantee of our future with this uh, resurrection body with life. Therefore, we're always confident knowing that while we're at home in the body now, we're, we're, we're absent from the Lord. And then the opposite is true. When we're done with this body, we're with the Lord. That's, it, that's the exchange that's it's viewed to happen. And then he adds, for we walk by faith, not by sight. These are things you can't uh, learn through a, a microscope. They're things you have to hear from God about the reality of things of, 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 of heaven. And uh, you recall Jesus saying, if you didn't believe me when I told you about earthly things, how will you believe the heavenly? We, we have no other source for the heavenly things. What, what does actually happen beyond the grave? Um, but Paul would elsewhere talk about being ready to die, to pour himself out. Um, so that he can be with the Lord. He has this idea he'll be immediately with them. Uh, but he says it's, it's profitable now for you that I stay around a while longer. And, you know, he continues uh, talking, you know, writing to and, and ministering. But that's the idea. So I just want to end with that, that idea. We have a, we have a soul that, that most, for the most part in Scripture is how we experience and enjoy life. And, and we can invest it to be rich toward God or not. Uh, and then we have a body, of course. Everyone agrees on that. So I didn't focus on that. See, almost everybody agrees on that. Uh, um, some thinking has said, no, 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 you don't have a body, but it's kind of weird because like, I bump into walls and step on Legos that hurt and all kinds of crazy things. And, and, then, and then you have a spirit, though. And that's what's key because from a, from a, um, a naturalism uh, mindset, um, if, if there is no intelligent designer and everything's just physical, uh, like, like Carl Sagan would say, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but the cosmos is all there is, was, or ever will be. If that's the way it is, there's nothing that exists beyond the grave, and so no hope. Uh, but, but in fact, what the, the scripture talks about repeatedly is that we have a spirit within us that is indestructible, that continues beyond this mortal life, and is clothed with a resurrection body later, and, and it's, it's permanent. And so that's what we want to get about the aspects of man. And, and if we didn't have a spirit, we really couldn't relate to God. We'd be like dogs and cats in that sense. Uh, it is our spirit that allows us to worship in spirit and truth, uh, to grow spiritually, to be, as Paul would talk about there in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, you know, I'm having trouble talking to you people about the scripture because you're not spiritual people yet. An idea of, of kind of growing in your maturity, a closer, stronger uh, connection with God. And that's a spiritual transaction. So we're in there. Um, let, me, let me pray.